Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where some friends from Philly get together to uh, discuss, you know, movies, uh, discuss uh, the current state of the pandemic, discuss uh, our own jokes and have a good laugh at them, and uh, all sorts of other things. I felt that might be a nice intro for new listeners because uh, as of recently, we have been adopted into a podcast network family. Uh, that is the uh, Movie John Podcast Network. Uh, that, of course, Movie J-A-W-N. You can find that at moviejohn.com uh, where there's a uh, clickable index of all the different podcasts. That includes Best Friends Forever, Cinematic Crypt, Dep Impact, F Yeah F1, Hate Watch, Great Watch, which I've heard a few episodes of and is really good. Uh, I like to movie movie, which we've had some crossover work with before. Uh, I saw it in a movie and, of course, a new podcast featuring our buddy Tori and uh, Garrett of I Like to Movie Movie that called Killer Bees and uh, a thorough exploration of uh, all things bee cinema. Uh, so that's uh, definitely something to look forward to. And I believe they'll be celebrating their fourth episode when this airs. Uh, So definitely check out all those podcasts and uh, check it out through moviejohn.com because there is an easy link to uh, each RSS feed or or where you can listen uh, for all the podcasts available. And we're really happy to be part of that family. Speaking of family, how are you guys doing? Uh, I'm joined, of course, by uh, Connor, Christine, and Sam. I'm doing all right. It's been kind of a weird week, so I'm very happy to be recording with you all. Uh, And it's, yeah, I'm just super happy to be here. And this is like, I feel like the one reason, you know, why do- doing a movie podcast is fun is to talk about movies like the one we're talking about today, because there are many layers to the film we're talking about today. So I'm super excited to dive in. Um, yeah, I'm really excited, too. And, you know, this week has felt kind of weird. I ended up like not really watching too, too much. I uh, I saw on Netflix that they uploaded like a new true crime thing. And when I first saw it, I, so the real title is Murder Among the Mormons. But I thought it said oh, Murder Among the Morons. And I was <laughs> like, what the fuck is that? And oh, it. And I've tried to watch the first episode like three times, but I'm just so unbelievably bored. Sorry to people who've died, but um, (laughs) I'm going to give it another shot. But um, instead, what I've been watching is, and please don't judge me for this, like whatever. Um, I watch ghost videos on YouTube with my roommates. Uh, We particularly like this guy. His name is, uh, he he has a channel called Nukes Top 5. So we've been watching a lot of those. And the the last episode that's up there, right? Well, I guess it won't be. The last episode, according to March 10th, (laughs) is like the bomb.com. So like, if you like scary things, I don't actually even believe in ghosts, but I just like to be scared, you know? So like- Long for the ride. Check it out, yeah. Uh, speaking of uh morons uh i watched space jam recently like moron mountain yeah yeah the little more characters the morons i don't think i'd ever i don't think i'd ever seen it because not much of it really registered except for maybe a couple scenes i gotta say i did not like it <laughs> and i know it's a fave of a lot of people but it's just so bad like on so many levels uh yeah, I'm so sorry to listeners out there who like love Space Jam. And I'm sorry to you guys if you really love Space Jam, but it was not my jam. Um, <laughs> nobody cared about any of the characters. It was, I think especially since we had recently seen Who Framed Roger, Roger Rabbit and we talked about it 
And it's just like, if you're going to mix tunes and live action, I don't know. Space Jam was not my favorite. I did uh, like the soundtrack was great. Walk down memory lane. And that's about it. But in my quiet moments, um, like, and, and this is just to go to like my ADHD in my quiet moments, sometimes (laughs) come on and slam and welcome to the jam. We'll just like (laughs) blast on in my brain. Um, but it's funny you mentioned this because I recently got into an argument with one of our friends about space jam and whether or not it's science fiction. (laughs) I mean, there's aliens. Yeah, there's some space. Yeah, there's space. There's aliens. Um, In the title. I, right? <laughs> I I didn't have any hard opinions on it, but this person ha- did. And I was just like, well, clearly I have to take the antagonistic role. So, like, we fought <laughs> over text message for, like, an hour about it. Uh, I guess they're doing a remake, and that's causing a lot of stir. And I think I only knew that because I watched Space Jam and somehow my phone now knows I watched Space Jam and sending me all of the updates about like what it's going to like what uh, they've cut the Pepe Le Pew scenes and that caused a stir. Um, I think. Yeah, I think they're like redoing Lola, all of this mm-hmm. stuff, which I didn't want to fill my brain with. But somehow my phone insisted that I know this information. I wish Space Jam had just been a music video, like a long music video. It just had so much product placement in a way that was not funny. It was just, I don't know. Again, maybe if you ask me on a different day what my views of Space Jam were, I'd have a different opinion. But I was just not digging it. I'm like living for this review, honestly. <laughs> I love it. Like you, have to, you have to pick it one day as a movie. I, maybe. You know, actually, this, yeah, if we do like... Uh, <laughs> jams <laughs> jams yeah oh my god J- yes jam theme and jam is up to your interpretation <laughs> um yes let's put it on the docket oh i would do waitress um yes. <laughs> wait question do we think that bill murray is going to have the randomest scenes in the new space jam like he did in the first no, it's going to be someone else. They'll update it and it'll be, you know, someone who is like an older comedic presence that younger generations like more than Bill Murray, probably. Seth Rogen. <laughs> Maybe. Um, well, speaking of the, the awkward clash of animation and uh, <laughs> and actual footage, I did uh, take the time to watch Tom and Jerry. It was uh, a joyless chore. Um, Why did you do that to yourself? Because I saw the trailer and I thought maybe this might be something. I don't know why. And, um, you know, it turns out it, it suffers from, I think, to a degree, like some of the problems I have with uh, with Space Jam does, where, like, by contrast to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where it's a very dark film, like, cinematically, so you can really make a lot of excuses for, like, the nuance between what's actually filmed and the uh, hyperimposed characters or superimposed characters. Um, but... With Tom and Jerry, everything is just so bright and very, like, clearly defined HD, like, 4K footage of New York, on top of which these characters are animated with, like, the texture of emojis almost. So it just really clashes and doesn't work. And also it was just, uh, yeah, not a good movie. I don't know. Tom and Jerry is one of the most successful films at the box office so far in 2021. Wow. Oh. 
Well, shut my mouth. <laughs> Gosh. One, I think I have not seen Tom and Jerry, but one thing I thought was very funny is that when some people tried to put on Tom and Jerry, the Snyder cut, Justice League played instead. <laughs> yeah, I heard about this. <laughs> and so, so many, many people were able to watch the first 10 minutes of the Snyder cut before it comes out in like two weeks. Incredible. <laughs> I suppose um, this is a this is a good opportunity for us to uh, dive into the conclusion of the theme that we've been exploring uh, in this rotation. We've all been bringing different time travel movies to the table. That being a pretty loose, uh, pretty loose framing of the theme and concept, so that we could explore a diverse set of films and uh, some really fun ones. And uh, this one uh, actually transports us back to two thousand one. It's uh, the indie cult darling, uh, Richard Kelly's Donnie Darko. I think a lot of people listening to this will probably have seen it, um, but to those uninitiated, here's a spoiler-free synopsis and uh, also a heads up that if you haven't seen it, it's probably not going to make a whole lot of sense one way or the other, so you might as well just keep listening. Uh, (laughs) Synopsis of the film would be that Donnie Darko, a troubled teenager, is haunted by visions of a mysterious figure in a rabbit suit named Frank who offers an ominous omen that the world will end in 28 days, six hours, 42 minutes, and 12 seconds. Frank coaxes him out of bed on the night that a separated jet engine crashes into Donnie's room without explanation, setting into motion a strange sequence of events that may just prove Frank's warning to be true. That is, unless Donnie can step in to set things right. Uh, that's more or less uh, how the movie plays out. An interesting film in terms of like its uh, its production and its its rollout and how it was financed and who championed it early on as an indie picture that uh, went on to to achieve such heightened cult status. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Jenna Malone, Drew Barrymore, Mary McDonnell, Patrick Swayze, and the film debut of Seth Rogen. Uh, its score is by Michael Andrews and uh, is one of my favorite scores ever also a, a an awesome soundtrack featuring tears for fears joy division duran duran echo and the bunny men the church and gary jules is now iconic mad world uh cover that tears for fears song um and all of that uh going a long way to uh to piece together the the elements of the film that we're going to discuss i suppose let's uh let's briefly discuss what our interaction was with this movie because you know it is kind of like uh, an early odds cult classic and has really become revered as like an indie cult film. And uh, I know that Christine and Sam have seen it before and Connor has not. So why don't we start with uh, the more familiar perspectives from Sam and Christine, and then we'll get into what uh, Connor thought with his first ride. Um, so I've, I've made a decision. Um, I fucking hate this movie, but, but I am coming in here with an open heart and open mind. I am ready to hear why this movie is so revered. So I'm excited, sort of. Um, So I'm going to mostly just listen. Just listen to what makes this movie good. Okay. (laughs) Well, Sam, what was your first experience with it? When was the first time you saw it? You know what? It's weird. Like, I don't even remember. I think that it was probably... Sometime in high school, I would say, because, you know, there there is something about like, if you grew up as an alt kid, you've you kind of like um, found these movies or these bands and these things. And so it came across my radar that way. Um, and I remember just watching it and being like, yeah, I'm stupid. I didn't understand that. But Jake Gyllenhaal's cute. So that was really <laughs> it. Um, 
And then I watched it again in college and just being like, I, I'm just too dumb for this. I'm too dumb. <laughs> and didn't, did, obviously didn't enjoy it this time around. Okay. Well, that'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Christine, what did you think? I have seen this movie at least once, I think, and twice. But like when I was watching it for this episode, realized how much I had forgotten and I like hadn't really retained a lot of the movie. And so a lot of it was uh, seemingly like watching it for the first time uh, because there were a lot of plot points that I hadn't remembered or hadn't put together in my own mind. I think it was also a movie that was like kind of always on like either at like friend's house or like at a party. And it's like, let's put Donnie Darko on. Hmm. And so maybe that's why I fully didn't register everything. Um, I think rewatching it, I think definitely kind of solidified in my mind that it's a very, I think like teen, like male teenage centric sort of perspective. And I think that I couldn't quite, like get on board. But what was surprising was that the performances that I like, I love Jake Gyllenhaal and I always loved him and things and he, but rewatching this, he wasn't my favorite part of the movie. It was like the peripheral characters that were actually my favorite, like Rose. So um, the mother, Mary McDonald, I realized that her performance was my favorite performance in the movie. And there's this, And I think the movie does showcase some really interesting and um, very sort of like, not quirky, but sort of, I don't know how to fully describe it, but her performance, it's like she's playing kind of this like weary mother, but then there's always something in her eyes that you can see going on as she's trying to recognize like what her life is, what her relationships to her children are. And I think that was really kind of fascinating to watch. And I think the movie does a wonderful job of like pulling out some very odd performances that are really, uh, really intriguing. Um, But I think I also mentioned last week that I'm on the Drew Barrymore train and it's just great to see Drew, like young Drew as a, as a teacher. And I read in your notes that she helped save the production when it didn't uh, have enough funding or it was going to get pulled. So it's always nice to see Drew in some, uh, in some young roles. It's interesting. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely get to her role in, uh, in terms of financing and, and basically getting the film made uh, shortly after, uh, after this uh, and also get into her performance, which uh I've got my feelings about, I guess, which could also be a result of her character. It's a lot of stuff. Um, But before we get to that, uh, Connor, I know this is your first time having seen this movie. Uh, So what is it? Uh, It's it's actually, as of the premiere, maybe just a little over two months after the 20th anniversary of this movie. So coming to it for the first time, what was your experience? I'm really glad that we are having this discussion like more than a week out from me watching it. Because this is definitely a very like polarizing movie, and I had a lot of really strong feelings about not liking it right away, um, and just not really clicking it, not really understanding it. You know, minutes after the credits rolled, but after, and I know you're. I assume you're going to get into like the director's cut versus the theatrical cut. I just watched the theatrical yeah. cut, um, and then reading about what 
was, you know, cut and then put into the director's cut and then having time to like sit on it and think about it. Like a lot of this movie is actually really stuck with me and I um, did not really like it much at all while watching it. But a lot of the scenes I feel like have kind of been like running through my mind and the um, different shots and, um, you know, iconic moments and costuming the music. So it's, I feel like it's a movie that has sort of wormed its way into my brain that I'm really excited to kind of dive into why so I'll kind of keep thinking about this movie and coming back to it, even though I had a pretty strong emotional reaction to it just after finishing it. Um, Connor, you said that some scenes have been sticking with you. I, I can't even believe that this has been a fear of mine that this movie created. I live in an airplane path. Every single <laughs> time one goes over, I'm like, please don't let it be like Donnie Darko. Please don't let this happen. And I'm 30 years old and I still, I think that every single time. For the production, like it does disaster it really effectively. Like for the, the relatively low budget that the movie was made with, I think it's shot, and I'm again, yeah, Connor, you're like, it's shot so well. Um, but it also like effectively creates plane disaster in in a way that I would expect to see in a larger budget movie, but like I think it really um effectively has things you know, the big engine fall and it really looks like a real disaster on on the house. <laughs> I think Richard Kelly has a lot of good bag of tricks in like his filmmaking and in the making of this movie. And I think it's also just a very impressive film as somebody's like first real effort out of film school. Um, so like kudos to him for like getting this thing made. Like I think that in and of itself is like incredibly impressive. That is, was this his first movie out of grad school out of like film school? It was, it was his first like uh, big premiere. It, uh, it, it, this and this being a good, really good time to get into the production notes. Um, I mean, uh, but actually, before saying that, I, I will say I've seen another Richard Kelly film, which is Southland Tales, um, which is <laughs> either a strangely subversively brilliant satire or is a complete disaster. But either way, it is a garbage fire of a movie. And and him unchained as a director, which kind of exposes how. Uh, as we'll get into with the production, maybe this film c- could have been worse and arguably is in the director's cut. Uh, Connor, you were going to say something? I looked up Southland's Tale on um, Letterboxd, and I have never seen a movie that is a flat line from half star to five star. It is like a <laughs> distant line of like everybody has such strong feelings about. Usually it's like one way or the other way, but this is like straight line across half star to five star ratings. It's a paralyzingly bizarre movie. <laughs> um, as concerns this movie's production, though, uh, and kind of how it, it it came to pass was that uh, it was largely considered dead on arrival as um, director and writer Richard Kelly's passion piece, uh, his first, yeah, as we discussed, his first like big effort at a, a feature film outside of school. Um, and uh, it was absent necessary funding for the production until uh, featured actress Drew Barrymore stepped in and financed the film through her production company, Flower Films. Um, it then went on to premiere January 19th, 2001 at Sundance um, that uh, then resulted in a, a small theatrical run, pretty much at the insistence of uh, 
the influence of then rising star Christopher Nolan, who kind of championed the film and said, like, you know, this is an interesting work and should at least at the very least have a theatrical run. Uh, the theatrical run was very unsuccessful because it was a highly underpublicized movie, which is largely due to the film featuring a plane crash in its close proximity to the events of September 11th, 2001, uh, which was just uh, obviously the film came out in January, but it was just uh, a month after or a month prior to its uh, theatrical release. So that really was the detriment to uh, to its turnout and to its gross. Uh, it had uh, an estimated budget of 4.5 million, and the small theatrical release grossed only about 7.5 million. So it was largely considered a, a commercial flop. Uh, however, the DVD sales, uh, when the film was released in 2002, quickly developed a huge cult following, and to date, it's regarded as one of the most culturally and one of the more financially successful independent films of all time. So it kind of rose to to its stature and to its station through a kind of ravenous fan base. I remember when the movie first came out, uh, it was the first DVD that at my local uh, local rental place I had to sign out for, like a library book. I had to sign up because in like, you know, spring of 2002 when this DVD was just rolling out and like it had such word of mouth and like kind of a primitive internet presence, uh, it really kind of became a must-see movie if you were like an aspiring cinephile in high school at that age. Um, so by the time that I actually got the DVD, it was so scratched from use after only having been out for maybe like two months that obviously a lot of people were watching it. So it really made an impact. Um, and I think for, for a lot of reasons. Um, but I suppose, uh, since it sounds like it didn't click so much with you guys, I guess let's, uh, let's take a look at what didn't land. What, what about the movie really kind of didn't come together for you guys. And then, um, Maybe I'll offer some thoughts about what I think landed for me this this go around because early on I was a huge fan. Then I kind of waned on it in college and got over it. And this time coming back around, there were a lot of things about this movie I really liked. So um, before we get to that, what what didn't land? Why don't we start with uh, performances? What did we think of those? I, f- I feel like everything felt so flat and a lot of like missed potential. Like for a movie with so many characters and so many really talented actors. It just kind of felt like everything moved kind of slowly. And I think it's weird because I think the pacing of this movie is one of my favorite things about it. Like, I think this movie has a really nice pacing, but I I just felt like a lack of like character growth or like character interest or character passion in what was going on. Like, it's a very, I don't know if passive is the right word, but it's very like all the characters are like pretty chill about what's going on. For a lot of it until like you get moments at the end or moments in the middle but it's a lot of just sort of like jake gyllenhaal figuring things out and so i think for me it was kind of hard to get into it because I, I had a hard time connecting with him as the main character but christine i'm really glad you brought up the mom because she was i feel like a real driving force of things happening in this movie and how i should feel and, you know she yeah i think that was a really great performance and a really great you know great character in the movie I think for me, something that I think is effective is how little it explains as far as what exactly is going on with the timeline, what Donnie's relationship with is with this, what his relationship is with the rabbit, uh, sort of the confused sequence of events. I think that's wonderful. And I'm, I haven't seen the director's cut, which from what I understand, it explains a lot more of the plot. I'm glad that we were sort of kept at arms like kept at a distance in really understanding plot wise what was going on 
um, or at least what is supposed to be going on, especially related to the time travel elements. What I wish that the script had done similarly is not over-explained key moments, like when we're supposed to see Donnie saying it how, like saying it straight, telling people how it is, how he's constantly misunderstood and he actually sees through the facade and through the uh, sort of social performance of high school and school. It's like, we get that. Like we can understand that. We don't need an outburst in the middle of health class in which he like talks about, or like basically is explaining his character as brilliant, misunderstood, and actually can tell people what life is really about. It's like, I didn't need a script and dialogue that was that, clear cut like I wish it had pulled back from those moments and let us sit more with and maybe it would have made it a slower <laughs> poorly paced movie but I kind of wanted it to to even the script to be a little bit more shrouded in mystery and not sort of these clear cut tropes I kind of saw like he'd be towards the end maybe the maybe Kelly was trying to get us to understand more of what his character is supposed to be, but he morphed kind of more into a sort of a trope by the end of the movie than an actual character that I wanted to be with and sit with. I don't know if that makes sense, but there were just some scenes and the dialogue was just like too straightforward. Yeah. For me, like when it comes to performances, the, the best way I can describe it is when you come home and all your furniture has been moved like three inches to the left, you're like, something's wrong here, but I can't quite put my finger on exactly what it is. And it's unsettling. That's how I feel about the performances. Like, I think that, like, to me, I understand what they were going for. And I think that um, the actors do a pretty good job of getting there, but it's the whole thought of why they have to be there in the first place. That just like makes me feel kind of uncomfortable. I think that, this is something that has bothered me as I've seen it as I've been older. The the folk and I I do I get it. I get that for a teenage boy, sex is a very big thing that folks are thinking about. I mean, the same thing is true with teenage girls, but the the focus on it made me like deeply, deeply uncomfortable. Um, and you know, like I'm 30, so it should, right? Like I shouldn't be interested in like a what like a like a 15 year old sex life. Like I shouldn't. Um, so who dodged that bullet? But it's just there were so many moments where I was just this is like unnecessarily sexual and creating creating moments of sexual tension that it it shouldn't have that like there was no need to do it and so I think like for me that was my biggest issue this time around are you, are you talking about like the scenes with Jenna Malone I'm kind of talking or about like his crew like like his yeah. pal friends just kind of in general like all of it but but particularly um, the, the two scenes in particular, um, when he's at his therapist's and he just keeps like, he's in a trance and he just keeps focusing on having sex and like he's under hypnosis. Yeah. Yeah. That I was just like, whoa. Um, and then when Donnie and Jenna Malone's character are walking home one day, 
he's he just like stops her in the middle of talking and he's like you know we've been going together for like two weeks like like and he basically was like don't you think we should kiss now and like i like i get it i do you know like i was like 16 once but um i don't know that's how i have to what i have to say i guess at that moment like i feel like what i do let it there there was like an era of jenna malone and this movie was a nice reminder of like she's she's kind of an oddball and like an intriguing oddball so i really i really enjoyed watching her and like in that scene particularly when things are sort of veering in like a weird direction she's like peace he's like so are we dating and she's like i mean i don't know, like whatever and then she's like i got to go home now and i just i thought that was actually kind of a a cute moment um especially in like reinforcing her as a character who you know can hold her own and be like okay I see you but I also am gonna go do my thing um yeah she's definitely like a bright spot of the movie I I think her performance is really interesting because her character isn't written very well um I mean it's just sort of a mopey character who just sort of like you know is largely a device uh, for us to, uh, you know, emotionally deflect the situation through Donnie or experience uh, his connection to another person. But at the same time, she plays it with a lot of range. Like, she doesn't seem like she's just moping the whole time. She seems like she's kind of outperforming the script that she was written into and actually brings some dimension to the character in a way that I think other actors in this movie fail at. Um, I suppose as concerns performance is the one that that really gets me is Drew Barrymore's. I think it's uh, honestly a very, very bad performance, which isn't entirely her fault, I don't think, because similarly, like by contrast to Jenna Malone, who has a, a poorly written character, uh, Barrymore's character is also written terribly, but not performed well. Um, I mean, the thing about Barrymore's character that always bothers me is she's presented as like this almost like subversive and like very like with it, and like connected to the kids kind of teacher um, who like breaks from curriculum and like actually like, you know, encourages like free thinking and like outside the box uh, teenage education. But at the same time, like we're introduced to that with like what uh, her classroom environment where she's chastising one of the students for not having read the book and says something to the effect of like, had you actually read the 15 pages, it would have kept you up all night. It's like, that's a pretty shitty attitude to have as a teacher. And then Gretchen Ross, um, Jenna Malone's character shows up. She's a transfer student and uh, is welcomed into the classroom with the notion of like, uh, well, where do I sit? And it's like, sit next to the boy that you think is the cutest. And like, it comes to blows later where like uh, Kitty Farmer, um, as played by, uh, I don't recall her name, but she's really great. She's in speed and, you know, she she often plays crotchety ladies, uh, I guess. And does in this movie too, uh, Kitty Farmer. Um, when she's confronting her at the PTA, just saying like, do you really think that Graham Greene should be taught in this high school curriculum and blah, blah, blah. And like, every, everyone's getting all pissed off. And Drew Barrymore's character's response is, it's supposed to be ironic, which is not a very good defense of an English high school curriculum. But like, I wish another parent was like, yeah, also I understand you've been like arranging seating arrangements based on like physical attraction in this high school. You shouldn't be a teacher. <laughs> I think the, I wish this movie just dropped the school element. I wish it was summer vacation. Cause I think so much of the, like, I think 
as I think this movie, like for me, just failed as like a high school movie, which so much of the plot like revolves around. And like, I was thinking like, what characters do you actually need in this movie? I think you only need like Jake Gyllenhaal, the bunny, the girl, um, Jenna Malone's character. Like you really, all the characters just feel so superfluous. Like I feel like there's no payoff with like the school teacher, Patrick Swayze, which I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, he has like moments, but it's like the, I, I just felt like the whole school line was like so confusing for what essentially boils down to Donnie trying to save the future, save the world. And I feel like the school was so like, just incongruent with that plot line. That was like the main driving force. Like as a B plot, I felt like it had no real relation to the A plot of the movie. And also this idea of irony, like they bring it up several times and it made me go like, do I know what irony means? Because that's not it. So I don't know. Like this is what I mean when I'm saying, like, I don't think I'm smart enough to understand this movie. I think the, the school, like you bring up an interesting point, Connor, like, is the school element of the movie executed effectively? Like, I think that it's supposed to be another setting where he's he, sort of like he's resisting or, or it's kind of revealing the problems of authority and and adults and like Donnie's relationship to elements of, of authority. But maybe the movie should have leaned more into the satirical presence or, or maybe it should have leaned more into sort of teachers <laughs> and sort of the farcical elements of the classroom and, and teaching. Because if they had played Drew Barrymore's character or if, if the script had written her character as also to be examined and sort of critiqued, and as opposed to trying to make her be an ally, I'm like, you know, as an educator, I would, <laughs> I would hope that students can trust their teachers, but I would see this movie and maybe taking it a step further and also making like teacher figures like Drew Barrymore, like the science teacher, also not like figures of authority that really don't understand what's going on in their own school. Like, like they do the head the PTA, like they do scenes with his parents and things like that. Um, what I will say about my defense of Drew Barrymore is it's not really defense, it's just a realization, just loving actresses or like people that I like don't feel like get their due justice. I went through my Cameron Diaz face. <laughs> I have closed that book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I suppose that can kind of bring us to uh, to some of the things that I honestly think are kind of highlights of the film, to be honest. Oh, well, also, I'd quickly like to add that um, I agree that Mary McDonald is uh, is really great in this movie. Um, I think she really brings a lot of delivered pathos that rides the line of um, her kind of... I, I think this movie, you know, it's, it's really... I think it's intentionally set in 1988 because it really has some things to say about, you know, like, uh, Reagan era affluenza and sheltered privileged communities, um, whether or not it explores them that effectively or whether or not that's interesting conversation in a post postmodern landscape is up to debate. But I think she does a really good job of, of portraying a kind of quiet skepticism of the life that she has found herself in. And I think that 
it, it's, it never really comes to it. She never really is written to say that, but I think it's, it's another one of those instances where like Jenna Malone, uh, this is a character or an actor uh, kind of really creating that subtext for the character via their performance rather than via the script. So that's really to her credit. I think what works for me about this movie really kind of is the stylization of the film. Um, I mean, it is very showy and it is uh, kind of definitely kind of over stylized to a degree. I mean, there's definitely moments where uh, certain portions of the film might as well be like music videos, like, you know, our, our, the tears for fears moment or like the introductory uh, thing with echo and the bunny man um, or the, the church sequence where he's navigating the house and these spheres are going everywhere. Um, I think there's a real acuity to to making those moments a really nice way of it's it's not atypical of like making a montage where like it's set to music, but it it does a really good job of just sort of like propelling the plot forward in a way that is just sort of like set dressing, but is also really complemented by its synchronization with the soundtrack and with the choice of song. Uh, so that's something that really lands for me. I don't know how you guys feel about the music or the score in this movie, but for me, it really stands out. I love the soundtrack. I think it's great. And like, that's one of the things that makes me hate this movie is because I'm like, you have this and you have that. And I just want it to be more and it's not. So I'm always like a little, like maybe this time around and it just doesn't work. I think the opening shot and is it the, which song opens is the Echo the Bunny Man song? Or is Killing it? Moon by Echo and the Bunny Man. Killing Moon. Okay, that opening shot and that song paired is so good. Mm-hmm. You see the, uh, I guess it's a dawn background, like the the rising sun background, Donnie off of his bike waking up, um, that shot in the curved road. It's like, it really o- opens setting the tone for like, this movie is going to like present some amazing songs. And yeah, I think it, a lot of it does flow like like a music video like as a good music video should showcasing a great song and like putting some some really nice shots and pairing that with with what's playing i also don't know if it was the speakers i was watching the movie on or whether this is part of the sound design but the score vibrates in such a interesting way and again did anyone else did the like the like low end of the score vibrate or was that just <laughs> the speakers that I was experiencing this movie on? I'd say having driven around for a lot of time in my youth uh, to this soundtrack in a car when like learning to drive and getting my permit and everything. Uh, it, it definitely does that. It's definitely like a lot of sound manipulation where there's a lot of low end frequency buzzing and things like that too. In certain moments to like underscore or accentuate tension or uh, or drama. I think it might have been exaggerated because I was listening to shitty speakers, but I thought it added to this wonderful otherworldly quality to how it sounded like not not in the like in the tracks, but like in the background. I don't know who was doing the other elements of the score, but uh, kind of this otherworldly quality um, of the, like, I don't know, the synths or strings or whatever we're, we're, we're playing. But um, yeah, I thought that was kind of a, a cool, cool element. Well, were there other production things that really stood out as either successful or unsuccessful in particular? I mean, that bunny costume's great. <laughs> um, 
creepy, especially the moment where Jake Gyllenhaal's in the mirror stabbing the bunny with the knife. Um, and all the scenes of like, it, I get like Slenderman vibes, kind of like that kind of figure, st- monolithic figure standing there, like drawing you in. So I think that like production design, I think that costume was like, however that was made in whatever, you know, however, whether that was Richard Kelly kind of whoever made that, I thought that was one of the big standout design parts of the movie. That's one thing that I think is interesting too, is that uh, as you mentioned, Connor, there's, there's a moment where he, Donnie is kind of like speaking to Frank and stabbing at this invisible wall that seemingly separates like dimensions. And it's like, you know, even for early aughts films uh, and it's a CG, it looks, you know, relatively cheap or pretty low budget. But the thing that I like about that and like the thing that I like about the orbs that appear out of people's chests and things like that is that on the one hand, it's all inherently a very kind of like dreamlike tone and atmosphere, which makes kind of a halfway excuse for it. But also those effects don't really do a lot. Like, I mean, there is the the orbital chest thing that kind of like maps out where people are going, which is a little more defined, but like the moments where Donnie is stabbing at this invisible barrier between dimensions, it's really kind of just ripples on the existing frame rather than it being this whole super developed and super uh, rendered CG kind of effect. So I think it kind of understood the limitations of his budget as far as it's, it's CG work and as far as it's visual effects. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, that it doesn't overdo it with CGI uh, sort of sci-fi elements. It kind of knows what it can accomplish within the budget. And yeah, I think this, this transition between regular shots and like the, those two, those tubes, party tubes uh, are effective. The only set I did not buy and did not like was the, the haunted uh, mother deaths. What what's her character? Lady Grandma Death. Death or Grandma Roberta Death. Sparrow. Yeah. Roberta Sparrow's house when they went uh, the fateful night. I, it looked too kind of like hokey, spooky haunted house to me. I didn't I didn't quite buy that element. Um, but all the yeah. other, like I love I love his his pals. Uh, sofa and shooting range that shot is beautiful and he utilizes it several times and it, it I mean those scenes are are pretty funny but like it's yeah the, just the couch with the lone bare tree against the high grass I was like mm, beautiful beautiful and what a like fun place to have as your like friends hangout area I don't know if this is me being too much of like a, a party pooper but I could not stop thinking about how is that chair still surviving? Do they drag it inside? Because <laughs> I don't know if anybody's ever seen a couch when it's rained on it, even once. Like, it's totally unusable. So I, I don't know if that's a sign of, like, I had a hard time, like, buying into the movie. But that's a scene where I was, like, I could not stop thinking about how is this a real place that they're hanging out? And it's just this one, like, love seat just chilling that is in perfect condition. I mean, you know, there's always those weird couches in the woods that, you know, you don't sit on them, but they're there. <laughs> I loved that hanging. Yeah, and that couch, it was kind of like a fake leather. So I'm assuming that like maybe the water kind of like beads and drips off. I'm sure they figured (laughs) out the logistics of their hangout zone. So I think one of the more baffling things about this movie as concerns a lot of people's interpretations or or what they think actually happens in this movie is just how the hell the time travel works to bring us back around to the theme that we've been discussing uh, through this rotation. So 
Richard Kelly did make a director's cut of the movie uh, that was released in, I believe, 2004. Uh, that with deleted scenes and some added scenes. And it really kind of does, quite frankly, lay out a lot of explanation as far as how this movie shakes out, how the time travel works, and how that affects uh, the plot and its characters. Uh, that having been said, before I get into that and before we hear what Richard Kelly himself has to say about whether or not any of this makes sense. Uh, how did, how did we feel this movie shakes out? I mean, what did we think necessarily in short strokes, uh, happened with the plot of this movie and the time travel elements? I was a little confused why you picked it as the time <laughs> travel month. And then I think as time has gone on, I've appreciated more what Kelly was attempting to do with this sort of different take on time travel and, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I did roll my eyes when it's like, it's the mom and daughter's plane that loses the engine. Like I did kind of roll my eyes at that, but moving further away from that initial kind of like emotional reaction to that moment, I think a kind of greater appreciation for the groundwork that was being laid up and the conversations that Donnie was having with the science teacher and with different characters about him trying to figure out what is the bunny telling him and how does this relate to the jet engine that mysteriously fell on his house. I had no problem with the time travel elements. I bought it all. I was like, this, this, for storytelling purposes, I thought it made total sense. I can't explain to you why the rabbit initially visits him and offsets his, like, destiny to, like, be killed by the engine, the plane engine. But I think the way the story unfolds, and as you realize that he realizes what's actually going to happen and makes certain decisions to, like, save his family's life or, or this is my interpretation I'm assuming that's kind of what happens um but I, I bought that and I think that that uh was kind of sort of more clear-cut than I think I was expecting per se I don't know but I still would love to know why the rabbit first visits him who we then discovers is just some random dude on Halloween mm-hmm there's something about um, whenever I am around science or math, the goblins in my brain just like shut the lights off and go on vacation. And so like, I'm just like consuming. And when that happens, I consume and I go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So that was one of those things that I didn't have a problem with. I was like, sure, I buy it. That makes sense. <laughs> yes, I bought, I bought the whole thing too. <laughs> Well, to be honest, that uh, Connor is in answer to your question is sort of why I picked this movie because there are time travel movies that I really adore. Um, I mean, Twelve Monkeys I think is the best single universe loop time travel movie ever made, and it really explains that concept. There are some really great string theory uh, time travel movies that we that we discuss, like um, things like Back to the Future, which is obviously like an iconic example of that idea. Uh, or or Star Trek uh, 2009, which uh, which does a really good job of exploring string theory. I pretty much picked this one because, absent the director's explanation, the time travel elements are are, are unnavigable. There there's no way to really kind of figure out what this is supposed to mean or how it connects, which is kind of I think an interesting strength of the theatrical cut because it was handled by an editor, who allows that those vague aspects remain vague. And that you can enjoy or <laughs> or as we found out, not enjoy the surrounding elements of the film. Um, 
But as far as what Richard Kelly has to say about how this movie works and how it makes sense, it's something that is explored in the director's cut, which includes uh, snippets from the book uh, that Roberta Sparrow or Grandma Death wrote, uh, The Philosophy of Time Travel, which is a really detailed exploration of the time travel elements that occur in the film. So see if you can follow along with this. Uh, a tangent universe is created when an artifact, in Donnie's case, the jet engine, uh, travels through the fourth dimension from a prime universe. The newly created tangent universe is highly unstable and will collapse in a black hole with the potential to destroy both universes. Thus, the artifact must be returned to its place in the prime universe. So, the job of returning the artifact becomes the goal of the living receiver, uh, which in this case is Donnie. Uh, the living receiver is granted with supernatural powers to help them with this task, such as increased strength, prophetic visions, and telekinesis, but at the increasing cost of uh, alienation. Uh, surrounding the living receiver are the manipulated dead and the manipulated living. The manipulated living are uh, those connected to the living receiver whose actions in the tangent universe subconsciously guide the living receiver toward their goal. In this case, that includes the Darko family, uh, Jim Cunningham, his teachers, and even Roberta Sparrow herself. And there are also the manipulated dead, who are people who die in the tangent universe, and thus it becomes their conscious goal not only to save both universes but themselves by guiding the living receiver through an insurance trap. In this case, Frank beckoning Donnie from his bed. So, how much does all of that track? But like, ultimately, what what's what's his role? What's the like title of his role? Donnie, the living receiver. The living receiver, but he ultimately makes choices that lead to his to his death. So, is he sort of the sacrifice hero? I suppose so. I think that's the one thing that like is all of this lays out the elements, but doesn't explain the events. I think. (laughs) <laughs> I, I after hearing that i wish that richard kelly wrote the script slept on it for 20 years and then after many successful movies hbo picked it up to turn it into like an eight episode miniseries because hmm. it feels like those are some really great ideas and things that have been touched on in watchmen in westworld just two other hbo properties um shows and i feel like there's a lot of really interesting things there and he, it was ahead of its time is kind of what his vision sort of feels like. So I'd be super curious if this was not made in, you know, 20 years ago, but something created very recently for a streaming service like HBO, I think could be super interesting. Unless Christine looks like you disagree. I'm going to disagree with that because I think that what is given in the cut, the, the theatrical cut, I think the details that are given to the audience are just enough. I really don't want to, I didn't want an over-explained universe. I can, I can get behind the double parallel universes or the engine piercing through one, like, universe into another. But, like, did I really need that? I don't think so. I think, I think at the end of the day, what I wanted was a little better script. (laughs) Fair, very fair. Um, Because, in fact, I think the mystery the unanswered questions are really an appropriate tone for this kind of story. And I think too much explained in an eight part HBO miniseries, I think for this, I don't know, would be a very effective. I also think 
going back to the idea of it being leaning heavily into this sort of uh, music video vibe, I think sometimes that's what is really effective about music videos is that they're lean. They can only tell a visual story in, you know, three to five and a half minutes. And it's just a visual spectacle paired with great music. And so I think that that, this movie, you know, it's not very long. It, it, it doesn't answer all of your questions, but it's kind of a mood and kind of a visual spectacle. Um, the only thing that I would like explained is, is the wave between Donnie's mother and Jenna Malone. Oh, okay. Well, or maybe I didn't need that explained, but I am curious. I didn't want to know, but like, yeah. What do you guys think? Well, so <laughs> do you, do you want to know? Cause I guess yeah, there, yeah. there okay, is a bit I of an explanation. Tell I suppose. Me, I know. So, I mean, in the end, Donnie, um, aware of his role of the living receiver due to the philosophy of time travel, uh, due to Frank's actions as the manipulated dead and due to the subconscious guidance of the manipulated living, uh, drives into the mountains where he can use telekinesis as the living receiver, which, by the way, is never mentioned in the movie, which is a big problem, uh, to separate the jet engine and send it back through the uh, emergent black hole between the two universes. Um, this action undoes the events of the film, and it uh, results in him returning to his bed where he's crushed by the falling artifacts, sacrificing himself to save the Prime Universe. Afterward, we see the manipulated dead and living of the Prime Universe kind of shudder in the night, almost as if awakening from a dream with a vague and dissolving memory of their roles within the tangent universe. So when that wave is almost a half-remembered deja vu between the two of them of a tangent universe that they were spared from via Donnie's intervention. He has telekinesis? Yeah, it's never mentioned in the movie, and that's a big problem because it's really important. I, but, and the, the, the wave is acknowledging two characters that would have died had it not been for Donnie saving the day, right? It's like, I see you, you see me. I suppose maybe, yeah, there's something to that. I don't know. It gets really, really hairy once you start picking too much of this apart. I think I thought they were supposed to be the same carrot. Like, it's like, oh, the mother is actually Jenna Malone. Well, no, that gets a little Freudian. It's very I don't Freudian. Know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> back to the future. It's like, I don't know. Who knows? I think what just got me what totally took me out of that end scene with the wave. And like, I totally appreciate what was trying to be done there, but who the hell is this blonde neighbor kid? It's like 11 year old, like a character well, that's the thing. never seen before. And that's, that's the thing I like about it is that it is just a kid that shows up and just awkwardly waves. And he's like, yeah, I know everything about, I know I'm going to just explain to you what's happening in the last 30 seconds. I don't know. That really annoyed me. Of like <laughs> that couldn't, we've met so many characters in this movie. And it couldn't be one of the ones that we've met before. Just this random new character that we know nothing about. He's either the Greek chorus or the audio uh, audience stand-in. He's just <laughs> sort of like this other entity. But you got to like... have the Greek chorus early. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I just say that, Dave, like listening to you explain what the, the director's whole point was. Do you know that meme of the person who's like busting out of the door because they're angry, but then something catches them and they like put their hand out to stop the door is like, I'm listening. <laughs> That's how I kind of feel with this movie. Or I was like, I'm, I'm done. Wait a minute. <laughs> and like, I don't know, I'm kind of voting for Connor's pick here, like doing it in eight episodes, a HBO series. 
that's actually kind of exactly what I wanted to lead out on, which is um, this sort of question of like uh, one thing that we've been discussing a lot recently is whether or not it is it is a good thing for a movie to leave us asking for more or wanting more, um, whether or not it is in in a media landscape where everyone is desperate to franchise everything. Is it a good idea to just let an idea rest with unresolved questions, uh, specifically as it applies to Donnie Darko? In this sense, I think for me, it's better to leave those answers on those questions unanswered, especially because I've seen S. Darko, the unofficial sequel to the movie based on uh, Samantha Darko from this movie, which Richard Kelly has disavowed. It's not his property. Someone else handled it. And it is if you're a diehard Donnie Darko fan maybe watch it if you have a casual interest in this movie or haven't seen it don't bother because it is terrible and it will be terrible even if you like it but i guess if you're a completist go ahead and check it out uh, also richard kelly is rumored to be working on a canonical sequel um for some reason i don't know for me i i really like that that the bare bones time travel elements we discussed that are laid out in the director's cut conceptually. And I think they're very interesting. And I think it really makes sense actually, surprisingly for this movie. But I, I preferred not knowing that in the theatrical cut then versus the director's cut. And I don't want more of this universe because I think it just sort of should be what it is and should be a one-off. But what do you guys think? My blanket statement before was more questions are usually a good thing. And Donnie Darko has proven me wrong. <laughs> my opinion has made me thought you know sometimes some more answers are worth it um should donnie darko be franchised out the 10 sequels in an amusement park probably not but i think 20 percent more answers 20 percent more information i think would have taken the movie from something i really did not enjoy to something that i found pretty interesting Maybe you should watch the director's cut then because that does that. But I do think it is a less interesting movie because of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, just listening to you describe it all, like, yeah, that's a little bit more interesting. Do I care? Do I want it? If it happened, okay. If it doesn't, okay. <laughs> I, I don't want any answers. I think it's it's an artifact of a very specific... I would say time period, like, like in this director's mind, very specific time period. And for me, I feel like when ah, I was, I'm going to go into sweeping generalizations and it should, cause I've seen it go both ways. If directors want to revisit material and flesh it out or release a director's cut, I've seen it go really well. And then I've seen it go really poorly. So I don't think I can make a blanket statement about whether directors should, um, uh, I guess, revisit their old material and try to tweak and recraft a movie. Um, but for this, I, I don't want, sorry, Connor, I don't want to see the HBO miniseries. I'm not suggesting that we go back and remake Donnie Darko. I just think if this original movie never existed and then he decided to turn it into something new in 2020 or 2021, I think it would have been handled better. Instead of a first outing in somebody's career, maybe like somebody's, you know, sixth or seventh or eighth outing in a film career. So what you need to do is you need to hop aboard a jet engine and you need to go back to maybe like 1999 and run into Richard Kelly to be like, hey, just wait like 20 years. I think what is unfair is that, well, I don't know if it's unfair, but it is interesting that this was his debut film 
and cemented him or like this movie has been cemented as a cult classic and that he really couldn't follow up this movie. I haven't seen Southland Tales, but from what I've gleaned from the the chat, it's not worth watching. You're fine. But it's like, I feel like if we had, if we had another, a whole body of work to really look at, like what Richard Kelly is able to produce, I might be like, wow, he really laid out some interesting concepts. Not, not everything landed, not everything ages well, but this was the beginning of a really interesting career. I think maybe my views of this movie would be a little bit different, but because I feel like this movie is its own little thing and that this mind never like followed up with anything like else that really reaches this level, it's like hard. I don't know. It's just like hard for me to like see this movie as like amazing, amazing. You know, Christine, that reminds me so much of Jonathan Larson who wrote Rent, the musical. Cause it's, you know, he died right before that show premiered and Rent is what it is. I'm not a particularly big fan of Rent. I think there's some good songs, but there are people who love Rent and Rent is their entire life. And I feel like there's some, you know, in college, I knew a lot of people who like Donnie Darko was their favorite movie of all time. They watched it every week. And same with Rent with a lot of my musical theater friends. So it's a shame that like Jonathan Larson died and could not have produced, like what would his fifth musical look like if Rent was his very first one? So that just kind of, I don't know if that's unrelated, but it reminded me of what you were talking about. You know what? Now that we're talking about this, I'm going to watch Southland Tales because I want to, I, I do, I want to see threads of like themes that he might be exploring in Donnie Darko and maybe they'll come out in this movie. I'm going to watch, I'm going to watch it. I want to see, I want to see. It also has the rock in it, right? I love the rock. Yeah, it does. <laughs> It, so, it does. <laughs> the look on your face suggests I should not even bother. I mean, let me know if you watch it. I'd be interested to hear what you think. And uh, also, of course, uh, thankful and interested to hear what you guys have to say about Donnie Darko. Uh, that kind of rounds out our uh, our time travel theme for this rotation. Uh, it's been an interesting look at a lot of different films with a lot of different themes and a lot of different different approaches to the time travel concept. And uh, because there are so many of these movies, it's probably not a concept that we... Uh, we it's a concept that we might easily return to at some point but that being said we do have a new theme coming shortly uh that we're really excited to dive into uh that we'll be getting into next time uh before then uh was there anything anyone wanted to plug or anyone wanted to recommend between now and next episode i ask because of course in the meantime you can always listen to any of the wonderful podcasts that we share a network with over at uh, Movie John, that again, Movie J-A-W-N, which is a really fun network with some really great shows, all of them uh, Philly-based and all of them about movies. So if you enjoy this show, chances are you'll enjoy some of those as well. Um, one of them, as we mentioned before, is uh, Killer Bees, which is uh, Tori and uh, Garrett's podcast that we highly recommend. And of course, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, there are avenues of to do that, that's uh, all of our socials and butter with that Gmail or butter with that podcast at gmail.com. One of these days I'm going to get that right. And you can drop us a line and chances are we're going to read your, uh, your correspondence on the air because we love hearing from you folks and we love knowing what you think of uh, the show and what you want us to talk about. So I suppose uh, until next time, thank you so much for listening and we will see you with the next theme coming down the pike. Bye.
Have a great time of day of whenever you're listening to this. That's right. Day, night, or night. <laughs> I feel like that.